Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is entitled, Whose Agenda Is It Anyway? and is a guest essay by Dr. Sam Rowan, who spent his adult life in international ministries, and most recently in theological education in Asia. Sam's essay, Whose Agenda Is It Anyway?, is based upon the lectionary texts for Sunday, July 23, 2006. In 1981, Richard Dreyfuss portrayed a paraplegic in the movie, Whose Life Is It Anyway? His character, Ken Harrison, was an artist who made sculptures. After a serious automobile accident, he was paralyzed from the neck down. The movie takes place in a hospital room in which Dreyfus plays the part of a man joking about life. He says, you'll get a lot of laughs before you cry. Eventually, he concludes that life is not worth living if he's not able to pursue his creative passion for making sculptures. People try to convince him that he should, in fact, continue to live, but Dreyfus gives the argument which no one seems to be able to effectively challenge. Whose life is it, anyway? This is the fundamental argument underlying many ethical decisions that we face in contemporary society. The argument for abortion, for example, is often that a woman has the right to choose what happens to her own body. It all sounds so logical because it's grounded in the concept of human rights, and something you consider a right is typically not up for compromise. Many have taken up this cause for human rights. It just seems so logical and ethical. On a recent visit to the United States, the premier of China, Wen Jibao, was constantly bombarded with questions on human rights from the people he encountered. His response was, we have different understandings of human rights. You here in America trace your understanding of human rights back to Rousseau in the time of the Enlightenment. In China, though, we trace our understanding back to a 13th century Chinese philosopher. Whoever did the research for the premier did an excellent piece of work. The language of human rights grew out of a time in history when people felt more secure in understanding their life in the world with no reference at all to God. So the emphasis became human rights, not God-given rights. The Bible doesn't even use the language of human rights. In fact, the disciples of Jesus have no rights. In the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The Bible discusses these ethical questions under the rubric of justice. It is God's kingdom and his justice we are to seek, according to Matthew 6.33. It's in the pursuit of justice that we're compelled to treat people made in the Imago Dei with dignity and nurturing care. However, it's not always easy to discern whether what we pursue in life is our agenda or God's agenda. In this week's reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see David desiring to do something significant for the Lord. The Lord had granted him peace from his enemies. 
David had the luxury of reflecting on what he could do out of gratitude to the Lord. So he decided to build a place to house the Ark of the Covenant. It was not going to be any old house, mind you, but one of the finest cedars. You can almost follow David's reasoning. It seems so logical. When we build a house for the Lord, it must be the best, because the Lord deserves only the best. We don't want to embarrass the Lord in the presence of the pagan nations. David even seeks counsel from Nathan the prophet, who tells him to go ahead with the project. The only problem was that the Lord had a different agenda. He spoke to Nathan and reminded him that the ark of his presence had always been in a tent which was very mobile. The people could move the tabernacle with the ark of the covenant and the people would be continually reassured of God's presence with them. Now during this time of peace, David thought it was time to do something that reflected the stability of the present moment. But Nathan was told to tell David that the Lord would make him a house. Evidently, David's plans were his own agenda. It was not for a lack of desire to do something pleasing to God. It was, however, a lack of wisdom. Wisdom always seeks to discern God's agenda in life as opposed to merely our own agenda. In the alternate reading, for this week in Jeremiah chapter 23, we see how easy it is to be seduced into thinking that what we are operating on is God's agenda. There in Jeremiah 23, the false shepherds receive a resounding judgment because they are leading the people astray. How different they are from the good shepherd who is the only one who can lead people to an understanding of God's agenda. Psalm 23 is very familiar. Here we clearly see that the Lord is our shepherd and he will lead us in the paths of justice or righteousness. The Lord will not only build the house for his people, but will also lead his people to, to discern and follow the Lord's agenda. The Lord will also through David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, provide us with a redeemer to make a way for those who have lost God's agenda and help us to regain it. God's agenda is characterized by God doing what is necessary for the people to glorify him and enjoy him forever. David provides us with a great example. He is described as a man after God's own heart, which is puzzling to hear God say because David was guilty of both murder and adultery. But God, who was rich in mercy, never forsakes him and continues to embrace him in his covenantal love. So when David hears the message given to him through Nathan, he listens and he changes direction. He recognizes that it is God's agenda anyway. So David becomes for us an example that flexibility is necessary in discerning the will of God. We're not left alone, but have the godly examples of those who have gone before us to show us the way. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said it so well in his poem, A Psalm of Life. Lives of great men all remind us 
we can make our lives sublime and departing leave behind us footprints in the sand of time. May God grant us the wisdom to discern the difference between his agenda and our own. And now for further reflection. Can you recall a time when you mistook your own agenda for God's agenda? How can we discern the difference between the two? Thirdly, consider the role of openness to the counsel of others, such as David did with Nathan. And then finally, just what is God's agenda for the world? For books this week, I review Leaving Church, A Memoir of Faith by Barbara Brown Taylor. New York, HarperCollins, 2006, 235 pages. Most Christians devoted to Christian ministry, like Barbara Brown Taylor, discover at some point in their lives the perilous interface between one's personal identity and the professional institution of the church which they serve. Often this interface brings a deep sense of satisfaction and fulfillment, but at other times it becomes a flashpoint for crisis. In the words of the Benedictine nun Joan Chittister, given the grace of experiencing the faults and failures of both myself and the church, how do I remain what Chittister calls a loyal member of a dysfunctional family, the church. After ministering for nine years on the staff of a large Episcopal church in urban Atlanta, where she lived half of her adult life, Barbara Brown Taylor moved to Clarksville in northeastern Georgia, a town of 1,500 people and two stoplights. The prospect of serving Grace Calvary Episcopal with its tiny sanctuary that seated 85 people was a dream come true for her, or so she thought. Her passion and competence spelled success. After five years, the church had expanded to four Sunday services. In the process, she nearly lost her soul, and so she resigned, she left church, and took an endowed chair of religion at nearby Piedmont College. Taylor's memoir reads like an account of classic burnout, an exaggerated sense of self-importance, her staggering sense of ownership, a deep need to help others, a relentless work ethic, self-pity, a heroic image of herself and a huge appetite for approval. All these led to a meltdown of bitterness, loneliness, uncontrollable tears, and resentment. She writes, My role and my soul were eating each other alive. In addition to describing her personal issues that contributed to her crisis, Taylor also reflects on the church as a human institution. Here, too, we discover familiar, if frustrating, experiences. While Jesus prayed for a kingdom, the joke goes, what we got was a church. The church guards its center, says Brown, 
and often persecutes those on the edges. Rigid belief enforced by those whom she calls the jurists marginalize those whom she calls the poets, who would rather behold than enforce rigid belief. Taylor structures her narrative around the themes of finding, losing, and keeping. She discovered that what she really wanted was to become merely but fully human. She lost her parish job but gained Sabbath rest. She lost her professional identity but gained a far broader and deeper identification with all of humanity. Most important of all, she discovered a spirituality of imperfection in which spiritual poverty becomes central to the path of Jesus. And this is what she calls a love story, or in the subtitle, a memoir of faith. Her candid narrative reminded me of the wise words of Erasmus in the 16th century, who, after failing at reproachment with Luther, returned to the Catholic Church despite all of its imperfections. I will put up with this church until it becomes a better church, said Erasmus, and it must put up with me until I become a better person. Barbara Brown Taylor, Leaving Church, a Memoir of Faith. For film this week, I review the award-winning movie Capote from the year 2005. Philip Seymour Hoffman stars as the infamous writer Truman Capote, who lived from 1924 to 1984 in what was unanimously thought of as one of the best films of the year, and that despite what I would call problems of viewer identification. In researching what he called his non-fiction novel, in Cold Blood, Capote befriended a young man who was convicted and eventually executed for the brutal murder of a Kansas family of four. The portrait of Capote that emerges in this film is of a flamboyant artistic genius whose deeply complex personality reveals itself in decidedly mixed motives. He attracts, repels, and fascinates us all at the same time. In the film, Capote befriends the young prisoner Perry Smith for at least four conflicting reasons. Capote was egotistical, vain, narcissistic, condescending, and ambitious, and several times he lied to Smith in order to exploit him for selfish professional purposes in writing his book. When asked, for example, if he esteemed Perry Smith, Capote could only reply, he's a gold mine. Second, Capote's gay lover, Jack, jealously accused him of falling in love with Perry Smith, which in fact seems to be true, at least at some level. Third, interviewing Smith evoked powerful memories of his own troubled childhood that resulted in an obsessive act of self-identification and emotional attachment with, his, with him. In one of the best lines of the movie, Capote says, it's as if we grew up in the same house, but he went out the front door and I went out the back. 
These memories include exclusion as an outsider, family suicide, alcoholism, and parental abandonment. Fourth and finally, Capote genuinely empathized for the young death row inmate, and the film provokes themes of social justice revolving around our penal system and pity for a criminal with a horrible childhood. Perry Smith is not a monster, he insists, and Capote says that he intends for his book, In Cold Blood, to, quote, return him to the realm of humanity, end quote. Still, Capote chose not to do all that he might have done to help save Smith. He even wanted Smith to die to supply an ending for his book. When the film finishes, we learn that the novel In Cold Blood remained unfinished and that it was the last book that Capote ever wrote, even though he lived another 18 years. Badly missing in this remarkable film is the slightest mention of the murdered victims and their families. Capote won five academic Academy Award nominations. And finally for this week, we have posted a poem by Maya Angelou, who was born in the year 1928. The title of the poem is called Alone. Lying thinking last night how to find my soul a home where water is not thirsty and bread loaf is not stone. I came up with one thing and I don't believe I'm wrong that nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Alone, all alone, nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Maya Angelou in the poem, Alone. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 23rd, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.